Good morning. Well, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17 and stand with me to read God's Word. Today we're going to see that when you experience Christ's glory, you're changed. When God intervenes in your life, amazing things happen. That's what we're going to see today. I'm going to read Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now again gathering together, waiting upon you, trusting you to give us what we need. And Lord, we ask now as we, as we come to a significant part of your word, where your glory is revealed, we pray, Lord, that we would experience your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you experience Christ's glory, you are changed. Big things happen when God changes you. Now we know that. We don't always experience that. Sometimes we need, we think we need a mountaintop experience. Now this is what we just read about. A mountaintop experience. We go to camps, we go on retreats, and we, we want to go up on the mountain, away from the distractions of the world, and there's something good in that because we get away from things that distract us from Christ. But this is a mountaintop experience, and big things happened on this mountain. Now, in the Bible, a lot of big things happen on mountains. God appeared on Mount Sinai to Moses in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. The nation of Israel, God appeared to them when God gave the law accompanied by fire and darkness and storms and thunder. So frightening that Moses said that he was trembling with fear. 
Mount Carmel. God answered Elijah's prayer in the presence of the false prophets of Baal by sending fire to, to, uh, to consume the sacrifice and the altar. God appeared to Elijah on Mount Sinai as well. But we want to experience glory just like them. They experience the glory of God. And we, we, do, we do seek mountaintop experiences because we want to be closer to God. But often what happens is we see that our life experience pales in comparison to those mountaintop experiences that we either have or want to have. And we get disillusioned about what it means to follow Christ. Things don't work out the way we'd hoped. Things fall apart. And we know we need a fresh glimpse of God and who He is and what He does. We need assurance from Him. We need, we need security from Him. We need freedom in Christ, but we often are bound up in our sin. We need a vision of the glory of God. You need a vision of the glory of God. I need a vision of the glory of God. Matthew 17 begins, it opens up with a revealing of the glory of God to three chosen disciples. And we get a glimpse of the unfading glory of Christ here. Stuff fades, doesn't it? I mean, you see a beautiful sunset and, and it only lasts for a few moments and it fades away. Colors fade, reputations fade, genes fade. Things fall apart due to sin. But what never fades is the glory of God. What never fades is Christ's glory. And our experience of it, even our understanding of it, may fade, much like Moses when he would come down the mountain and he would, he would put a veil over his face so they wouldn't see the glory, but also it was fading away. He couldn't capture it. He couldn't harness it. He couldn't control it. But the unfading glory of Christ shines over all. He never changes. He's always God. He's always good. He's always faithful. He's always true. He's always with us. He's always glorious. But what happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration? What was the impact, the significant impact on these three disciples? What can we learn from it? That's what I want us to see today is that when you experience Christ's glory, you are changed. You are changed. And it doesn't mean that you'll never sin again. Case in point, the three disciples that were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's the background. Matthew chapter 16 comes right before Matthew chapter 17. And Matthew, uh, Jesus tells his disciples clearly that he's going to die and rise again. They believe, led by Peter in confessing Christ and also rebuking Christ. They disbelieve as well. Never shall this happen to you, Lord. And Jesus then tells them they need to, if they're going to go after him, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And suffering would accompany their following. He tells them that he's going to suffer, and then he's going to come in glory with his angels and repay everyone according to what they've done. It will be, as, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, a law of judgment for the proud, grace for the humble gospel of grace for the humble as peter says god is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble but here's what jesus does he shows them shows several of them a dramatic glimpse of his glory look at verse one it says that after six days jesus took with him peter and james and john his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves 
It's kind of interesting that it's very specific here that it was six days later, right after Jesus had had this uh, situation with Peter when he had told his disciples he was going to die and rise again, when he told them about denying themselves and taking up their cross and following him, when he told them about his return in glory. Six days after this, they go up on a big mountain. Why six days? We don't know, probably because it took them six days to get over to where they were going. Now Luke says it was eight days. What's, what's with that? Luke is using a Greek way of saying about a week. It was about a week later, he's saying. Six days later. And he took three, and he led them. But why them? Why Peter, James, and John? Only God knows. But we might be able to guess, maybe they were favored. Maybe they were favorites. Maybe they were, maybe they were better than the other disciples. Maybe they were, you know, maybe they slipped Jesus. Uh, maybe... Maybe only God knows, and we really don't know, but we see that this is what you would call, what we call the inner circle of disciples. Most of the time it's these through. Andrew, Andrew is often, uh, sometimes invited as well. We also don't know what mountain they were on, and it really doesn't matter. But, but we do know this, they were on a mountain, and there are some options of what mountain that might have been. People have guessed. It could be Mount Tabor, south of Galilee, 1,900 feet high. It was, that's a, probably an unlikely location because Josephus wrote that at that time there was a walled fortress at the peak. It could be Mount Hermon. A lot of people think it was Mount Hermon above Caesarea Philippi, but that was in Gentile territory. And right afterwards, Jesus and his disciples uh, faced crowds that included teachers of the law. But here's Mount Hermon, 9,232 feet high. That's a high mountain. Or it could be Mount Miron, uh, the highest mountain in Israel, on the way from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, 3,926 feet high. Whatever the case, we know that Jesus went up on a high mountain with these three, and it was just the four of them alone. And based on what happened next, it looks like it was for good reason. Jesus is taking three representatives of his covenant people up on a mountain. And his appearance is transformed to the extent that his native divine splendor is seen. It radiates through his clothes and in his face. He's not reflecting someone else's glory. Where Moses would be coming down off the mountain and his face was shining because it was reflecting the glory of God and and it would fade because he wasn't God. Jesus here is, is, is radiating his own glory. The glory of Jesus is seen in his appearance. And, and really it's seen in three ways here in this passage. In his appearance, uh, by the, his choice of companions up on the mountain, and the voice that comes from heaven. The voice of God from heaven. Verse 2 tells us he was transfigured before them. That's the Greek word metamorpho. It, it means to be changed. Here in the context, it points to a physical transformation. It was visible to the disciples. It was a reminder to them of some very significant things. First and foremost, Christ's pre-incarnate glory. John spoke later of this very, of this very thing. John chapter 1 
And verse 14, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Reminiscent of the words that they heard from the voice out of the cloud. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. You look at the sun and it will blind you if you keep looking. His face was shining like the sun. It wasn't shining as the sun, but like it. It's a way to describe how his face was shining. And, and his clothes became white as light. In Scripture, when, 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 when clothes are as white as light, it indicates purity. Like when an angel would come from God and at the resurrection and, and announcing Christ's resurrection. It, it, it signifies purity. But the presence of God, it often, often those who are in the presence of God experience a radiant countenance like Moses did on Mount Sinai. But here again, Jesus is radiating his own glory. It's, it's emanating from him. It is his I want to repeat, Moses' face shone because it reflected something of the glory of God. Jesus' face shone because he is God. He was transfigured. Why was he transfigured? It wasn't for his benefit. He knew what he looked like in all his glory. It was tr- he was transfigured for their benefit. For their edification. This was a revelation from God. Similar to when when Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal your confession, the truth of your confession to you, but my Father in heaven. When when, when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was from God. That was a revelation from God. Well, this is a revelation from God. Jesus' face shines like the sun. His clothes become, become white as light. And it wasn't because of light shining on him from the outside. This was light coming from the inside out. They'd never seen something like this. This light had been eclipsed and had been veiled by his bodily appearance. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, the veil is lifted. They see Christ in all his glory. It was a remarkable scene coming fresh on the heels of Peter's confession and rebuke of Christ and Christ foretelling his death and resurrection. And Christ's call to deny self and take up cross and follow him. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I know that you cannot yet grasp the truths of which I've told you. So here, I'm going to show you. Just a brief moment, I'm going to show you the truth about me. And you're going to see it with your own eyes. That's not all. Verse 3, all of a sudden, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. You want to get freaked out? Now, wow, why them? Why these two, why these two Old Testament Figures, the, the appearance of, of two of the greatest Old Testament figures, Moses and Elijah. Why them? 
It probably represents how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's what he said in chapter 5 and verse 17 of Matthew's gospel. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Moses was the model prophet. Look at Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. And by the way, Moses was the model prophet and Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18. Here's what Moses said. Verse 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak words to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus is the prophet like Moses that would come and speak all of God's words. Presence of Moses and Elijah. The last, the last few wor- verses, the last few words of Malachi Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 Behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the come the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction Right before that verse verse 4 he said this Remember the law of my servant Moses the statutes the rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel Moses and Elijah, the last words of the Old Testament. So here we have Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. In this part of Matthew's gospel, Elijah had been mentioned several times. What's so special and significant about Moses and Elijah being here? Let's state the obvious about them. They were both Old Testament men. In fact, they were the last, as we just read, the last named men in the prophetic book, books of the Bible. Uh, the story of Moses and Elijah is not the story of Moses and Elijah, but the story of Christ. It's continuous with all previous revelations and, re- of, and redemptive history. Christ represents a new chapter in the same book, not a new book. They're both Old Testament prophets, not just Old Testament men, but Old Testament prophets. And Moses here representing law only because he was a prophet. He was not the first prophet of the Bible, but there was no prophet like him. Deuteronomy 34 tells us. He eclipses even Elijah. And they're both Old Testament prophets that perform signs and wonders. None of the the other great prophets of the Old Testament, even like Isaiah or Jeremiah, performed miracles. Moses did when the plagues came on Egypt, and so did Elijah when God made provision through him, continuous provision through him for the widow and her son, the one that was raised from the dead. 
For Elijah, the miracles he did signified that the words he spoke were words of truth from God. The miracles um, of Moses and Elijah authenticated them as, as spokesmen for God. Miracles of Jesus authenticate Jesus as God himself. So they were both Old Testament men. They were both Old Testament prophets. They were both Old Testament prophets that did miracles. They were also both Old Testament prophets that spoke with God on mountains and saw his glory on mountains. They were both Old Testament prophets whose graves cannot be identified. Moses, because God buried him in an unknown unknown location. Elijah, because God took him up. He's not buried. They represent the law and the prophets, but also something even bigger, the whole trajectory of Old Testament prophecy. It gave way to the finality of Christ, the glory of the prophet like Moses, who would ascend into heaven like Elijah. Hebrews 1 tells us, God, having spoken in in former days to the the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through who? His Son. Jesus Christ. Response by Peter. Are you surprised? Are you surprised that Peter is the one responding in verse 4? It wasn't James and John. I'm not surprised. Matthew records five instances where Peter is kind of the centerpiece in the disciples' setting. And here is another, the fourth out of five. Jesus, here's Peter saying these words. Lord, it is good that we are here. And if you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter is speaking for the three, not uncommon for Peter. He says it is good for us to be here. He realizes the greatness of what they had seen. He makes a suggestion. It sounds crazy to us. The word tabernacles, by the way, looks back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Feast of Tabernacles, where Jews built shelters for themselves and lived in them for seven days as well. That feast had overtones of end time events. But we don't know why Peter said what he said. We do know one thing from from Mark, that he said it out of fear. That he was afraid. Luke tells us he didn't know what he was asking. We get that one right away, don't we? Because we don't know what we're asking a lot of the times. We ask things from God that are just utterly ridiculous. It's a good thing God is patient with us, is it not? It's a good thing that God was patient with Peter. Peter may have been saying it out of gratitude for being privileged to witness this. Don't build me any tabernacles, Jesus said. But it's interesting, though, that Peter is the most outspoken, but he's also the one with the, the most, with the one that doesn't get it about Jesus as clearly as he should. Why would you build a tabernacle for Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Putting them on the same footing? And it's hard to see. You know, I was thinking, sometimes I, I've read this, and I thought, well, he didn't, um, Luke says that he did it as Moses and Elijah were about to leave. And I thought to myself, well, maybe he didn't want the experience to end. You know, how, you know how it goes when you're having this amazing experience, even when you're like at a retreat up in the mountains. You don't want to go home. You just want to stay up here because it's just so comfy and cozy. And Well, that's not what this was. <laughs> Why would anyone want to stay in a terrifying situation like that? 
It's hard to see how such a terrifying ordeal can, be, can lead to a desire to stay. So I'm not sure if that, was his, if that was what he was thinking either. We don't know. But all three accounts in the, in the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, highlights a motive of fear that leads to Peter just saying something. It's like, I got to do something. It's like people who, who there's something happens, they say, well, let's just have something to eat. Let's just eat. Fix some food. Uh, uh, dramatic occasion happens, well, let's eat. Or you got my gra- Italian grandma who just every time you came to her house, you needed to eat. You looked hungry all the time. Well, Peter just had to say something. Maybe, maybe there's something else. I don't know. Maybe you think about how Peter would have been thinking as a Jew that the tabernacle was the place that the glory of God dwelt, where God dwelt with his people. And maybe, and, 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 and maybe it was that he didn't want to be exposed to the consuming glory of God. He wants to ensure that the glory would be contained in, in tabernacles, just as the glory revealed in Mount Sinai was. We don't know. But here's what happened. While he was still speaking, verse 5 tells us, a, voice, uh, excuse me, a, a bright cloud overshadows them. And a voice from the cloud speaks to them. And this is what it said. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Much like the scene at, bapt- at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. What do you have here? You've got a cloud. You've got a voice. And then you've got a command from the voice. First of all, let's talk about the cloud. This, this bright cloud, it's like the way that God often appeared in the Old Testament times. To Moses on Mount Sinai. God's Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. The cloud guiding the children of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. The cloud of glory of the Lord filling Solomon's temple. The branch of the Lord bringing restoration to Jerusalem as the cloud of the glory of the Lord shelters Zion. God would often appear in a cloud. And then the voice here. The voice of God gives the same public endorsement of, of Jesus as as at his baptism. There the, bapti- the, the, the voice spoke from, from the glory out of the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It echoes that same sentiment. The voice from heaven showing that Jesus is one with the prophetic tradition represented by Moses and Elijah. But that he is also the consummator of that tradition. He is also, he is in fact the last prophet. Greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. And the command is listen to him. You know, this, this vo- the, what the voice says, what God says, is, is it's combining prophecy from Psalm 2, verse 7, this is my son, with Isaiah 42, verse 1, with whom I am well pleased, that Jesus is both the son and the suffering servant. He's superior to Moses and Elijah. So the disciples must what? Listen to him. Listen to what he says. He is not another prophet on Moses' level. When Moses is put next to Jesus, when Elijah is put next to Jesus, they bow. When, When you notice what happens here, when they're both put next to Jesus, we must listen to who? Jesus. They assume supporting roles where Jesus is concerned. Everyone is subservient to Jesus. 
And what is their response to this? Verse 6, we see the response. When they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Another common occurrence when you're in, in the presence of God. You're humbled. You are, you are overcome. You, 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 all you can do is fall prostrate on your face. The effects on the three remind you remind us of what happens to people like Daniel in the presence of God and Isaiah in the presence of God and Moses in the presence of God visible glory of God brings terror terror you see it over and over again in the Bible an experience of the glory of God the awesome reality of his presence produced fear fear of God reverence for him not disrespect for him not taking him lightly they're they're in the presence of God so there is actually worship falling prostrate see Mark told us that Peter spoke out of fear and it explains his foolish request But Matthew tells us the disciples' fear was in response to the voice of God. Only Matthew says that they fell face down on the ground. What that does is highlight the the, the greatness of this transfiguration scene. It doesn't highlight their fear, but the greatness of God. Jesus is God and must be worshipped as God. Jesus' response is, is gentle, it's beautiful, it's merciful, it's gracious. He says, he comes to them and touches them and says, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. He calms his disciples' fears. And then they lift up their eyes and and Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Jesus is with them. They're back to the original four. Verse 9 tells us that they were coming down off the mountain. Interestingly, Luke tells us they came down the next day. So they spent the night on the mountain. And Jesus tells them Don't tell anyone what you saw and heard. Don't tell them about the vision. But then he adds something. He says, until. Now you will be able to tell people about what you saw and heard, but not until. Not until what? Look at it. Not until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Not until the resurrection. Not until I come back to life after dying for your sins. And then the disciples have a question. They don't get the chronology. They don't even get maybe the theology that's going on here. They can't figure out the timing and they can't figure out what he's really saying. They say, well, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus says, Elijah does come. He will restore all things. That's something they would have said back then. But then he says in verse 12, and I'm telling you, he's already come. And they didn't recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer. And he goes again to his suffering, to his passion, to what he would do for the sins of the world. This this should have been an aha moment for the disciples. This should have been the light bulb flashing on. It was another opportunity for Jesus to reiterate his, his mission and his impending passion. And you see what happens after Jesus reveals the truth to them. Verse 13, then they got it. Then they understood that he was talking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not reincarnated Elijah. He was a type. He was a, he was, 
He was Elijah uh, uh, in the spirit of Elijah. He, was in the, he came in the spirit of Elijah. They come down off this mountain and issues are getting highlighted. The truth about Elijah's appearance emphasized by Jesus because he identifies him with John the Baptist. But he wants them to keep this a secret still for now. The time had not yet come to tell everyone. There would be a time of proclamation. There would be a time of preaching. There would be a time to make it public, but not now. Not yet. Unexplained question lingering in the minds of the disciples, and Jesus answers it. He gives them truth about himself. What about us? These, guys, these, these men that were with Jesus were obviously affected by this. They obviously were changed by it in some way. But, but how, what, what will happen in your life when you are exposed to the glory of God? What happens when you're exposed to the glory of God? When are you exposed to the glory of God? What happens when you're exposed to the unfading glory of Christ? What, need, what should be happening? I think the question you need to ask yourself is, have I seen the glory of God in Christ? Have I seen God's glory? Now, I don't think any of us would say we've been up on the mountain and we saw what they saw. But have we seen God's glory? Here's what the transfiguration of Jesus is is showing. It is showing His greatness for our benefit. I I really, I I think it, it, it really points to our salvation in Christ salvation in Christ those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ that Christ's transfiguration points to our salvation how so he was transfigured all those in Christ will be transformed same word by the way same word metamorpho same same word but in a different context Jesus was transformed physically to show his glory as God to them. But when you come to faith in Christ, you are transformed spiritually to show the glory of God to others. Do you see the connection? Jesus provides so great a salvation for those whom he chooses, and and that salvation is more glorious than anything that you will experience in this life. Anything. I was at the birth of all five of my children, and those were, those were all glorious experiences. Awe-inspiring experiences. I really can't think of any experiences I've had here on earth that have surpassed being at the birth of my children. But that is absolutely nothing in comparison to a vision of the glory of God in Christ. He has provided so great a salvation to all those who he saves by grace through faith in Christ, whom he justifies as a gift, justifying freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3 tells us. And those whom he sanctifies, making holy. It's a guaranteed sanctification for all who are in Christ. He is sanctifying us patiently. Think about Peter. Peter's here. I'm going to make you a tent. I don't know what you're talking about, Peter, once again. And then Peter would go on to deny Jesus. Peter would go on to try to quit the team after Jesus rose from the dead. 
And Jesus lovingly restored him, brought him back into the fold, put him back onto the team, gave him a prominent place. He didn't just have him sit on the bench. He was back in action because of Christ's faithfulness. So greater salvation, justification, and sanctification, and also glorification, glorious glorification, God glorifying completely and eternally all those who come to him by faith. Let me give you a few things about what will happen when God reveals himself to you in all his glory. And this, and this is only for, you know, we, when we come to the table and, and, and take of the bread and drink of the cup and we remember Christ's death, we always say this is only for the family. This is only for the family uh, because if you, if you don't have faith in Christ, you can't, uh, it doesn't mean anything to you. Well, the things I want to share with you now, this is for those whom, whom God saves. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you yet, but you can become one right now. You can see Christ in all his glory. But here's something interesting. I think we're always looking for the mountaintop experience. We're always looking for the dramatic. When God wants us to experience him daily. Daily. We want that one-time dramatic all-in-one magic pill. And God wants us to give, God wants to provide for us every single day daily discipleship to him, to Christ. So these things I'm sharing with you, these are not things that are going to happen and then it's like an automatic, it's going to happen for the rest of your life. You're going to ebb and flow through these things just like Peter, just like John, just like James, just like every other person who's ever followed Christ. Here's, what, here's when God reveals himself to you. You are going to have, first of all, an intense desire to worship him. But you're not going to have that every single day because I wake up most days not with an intense desire to read the word or to worship God. I have to often force myself to do those things, to do the things I know are right. But there, is, there are those moments when you have this, all you want to do is worship God. All you want to do is serve him all the time. And interestingly, it, it, it's terrifying to be in the presence of God. When you recognize that when Jesus said, I am with you always, you are always he is always with you. And when you really think about it, the fear of God comes into your life. As well as your love for him grows, your, your fear of him grows in the best possible way. Not fearing someone who's going to hurt you but fearing the awesome reality of who God is, much like Isaiah in chapter, uh, in, in Isaiah 6. Much like these three falling on their faces before him. And they catch a glimpse of that glory. It's coupled with, but not overridden by, an overwhelming sense of your need. You want to worship God, but you like Peter might make some really foolish suggestions to God you might have, have some really we all have some really weird ideas you might make some unwise promises to God God is patient with you and God knows your heart and God knows your desire and when, when you have what also comes with experiencing God's glory this overwhelming sense of your need what it does is it leads you again and again to confession and repentance to confess your sins to God and to turn from your sins to Him. Sometimes on an hour-by-hour, maybe minute-by-minute basis. And you feel like going back and forth and back and forth, but, but as God grows you, you become 
more consistent. You know you need to listen to him. And what else do you have? You, you know what else you have? When, when you have a, a vision of the glory of God, you receive from Jesus a gift of, assur- of assurance and security. You know when Jesus touched his disciples, he said, have no fear. Have no fear. He wanted, him, he wanted them to respect and honor him, but, but he didn't want that fear to turn into not wanting to come to him. There's that delicate balance of knowing what that actually means to fear God, but also love God and come to him as our loving heavenly father. The gift of assurance and security, he confirms truth that they needed to hear. Do not fear. Get up, don't fear. What else do you get? You get a renewed love and appreciation for the living and abiding word of God. Oh, they listened to the voice. <laughs> they, didn't, uh, they didn't forget what the voice said. They never forgot what the voice said. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1. I love this. You start at verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this reason making every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control steadfastness and steadfastness godliness and godliness brotherly affection and brotherly affection love and if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and, in, and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you lack these qualities, he says, you are blind, nearsighted, having, become, having forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. Peter's saying this. Vacillating Peter, back and forth Peter. Faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful Peter. I love Peter. I'm like Peter. You're like Peter. We're all like Peter. But then he says this. He says in verse 12, I I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this mortal body, to stir you up by way of reminder. You know what my preaching is week by week? Reminding us of things we know because we forget and the glory fades because we can't harness it we can't capture it it's God's alone and we sometimes run from it in ignorance sometimes out of fear here's what Peter said verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's looking back to the transfiguration. From when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, 
sharing with us about the Mount of Transfiguration. But lest we think, lest we think that we must somehow get up on the Mount of Transfiguration, lest we think that if we don't have the same thing that Peter and James and John had, then Peter says what he says next. And we've got to listen very closely. Here's what he says. Verse 19. And we have something more sure. What's more sure? The word of God. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you also do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when he speaks of the scriptures here, he is speaking of the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, as he alludes to Paul writing in the scriptures. You will have a renewed love and appreciation for the living, abiding word of God. And the Bible is focused on Jesus Christ from first to last. It's so easy for preaching to be about, here's some principles, some five easy ways to have a better marriage or be a better parent. And miss Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus from start to finish. You must see within its pages fresh, fresh truth in the person of God's unique Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, what will happen when you get this vision of the glory of God? I will reiterate this again. You will get life change. You will be changed when you see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Progressive life change that affects people. Progressive life change that affects... Lasting change comes from big movements of God's Spirit. These, those men would never be the same. And when you come to faith in Christ, you will never be the same. We know how... Moses used to cover his face and 2 Corinthians 3 goes into all that and how there was glory and he had to he had to he had to cover his face because of the veil. It says this in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. God will change you as you behold his glory seen in the face of Christ seen in the word of God and I'm telling the, the, the main word here in this passage is transfiguration metamorpho same word Paul uses to describe a believer's spiritual transformation as a result of being born again by the spirit of God Romans 12 2 says be don't be conformed to this world but be transformed be morphed by God be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that, what, that which is good and acceptable and perfect let's pray Lord God I, I know that many of us seem like we take we feel like we take one step forward and two steps back all the time we feel like glory is in short supply but it, it isn't we feel like Godward movement is slow in, on our parts. 
And Lord, maybe we're looking for the wrong things in the wrong places. Maybe, maybe we want that mountaintop experience where you want, but you want us to experience your glory daily. So Lord, Lord, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in you as we look in your word. Let me pray in Christ's name.